Today is part eight in our Hebrew series entitled Our Faithful High Priest, and I entitled this morning's message A Better Way. And I just want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank with just uh, one simple concept. Um, I've been involved in ministry in some fashion or another the majority of my entire life, and I've had a lot of conversations about religious matters. And I've heard the phrase, God isn't fair, about a million times. And I want to, first of all, say, well, I understand kind of where you're coming from. Um, when we get into issues like, well, why did God allow that child to live and that child to pass away? Why did God allow this and not that? God's not fair. And we hear that phrase a lot. Uh, why would God bless this person and not bless this person in the same way? And I found out that um, it's kind of human nature to really believe that there is a standard of fairness that you're allowed to come up with in your own mind and heart. And when God doesn't adhere to that, you get all over his case. You say, God's not fair. Let's be very simplistic and blunt about the issue that we have at hand. And it's this. You don't want God to be fair. How do we know that? Fair means you're going to hell. We don't want fairness. Yeah, the fill in the blank in front of you is simply this. It is grace is greater than fairness. Grace is greater than fairness. You don't want fairness. What you want is mercy. What you want is grace. Fairness is to leave you abandoned in your sin. That is not at all we want. I understand the concept. However, I ran into it just two days ago with my littlest one. She's seven and she said, if sissy gets to do that, it's only fair I get to do that. And I said, hold up, you don't want fair. We were talking about what's appropriate. And she said, no, no, no. I think it's all about what's fair. And I said, all right, well, let's play that game. I said, you had a sleepover and Sissy had a sleepover uh, Friday night. You, however, have a sleepover again on Saturday night. If we're going to be fair, we should block you from your sleepover because it's not fair to Sissy. She's like, no, that's a bad idea. And I said, there's my point. She said, well, I was talking about, you know, you need to share the ball when you're playing and you need to do that. And that's fair. And I said, no, 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 that's right. That's good. But do you understand it's not about fairness. It's about appropriateness. So we need to kind of expand our understanding a little bit about what God is doing. We do not have a frame of reference. We do not have an intelligence or a perspective by which we can even make a determination about what is fair and what is not fair in this world. Only God has that, and that inside information is not available to us. So we need to trust him and realize that he is good, realize that he is just, and whether or not we deem him to be fair, I'm not so sure we ever want him to be fair. Now, in getting into the Bible today, we're going to be going through a passage that upon first reading, again, it sounds very convoluted, very complicated. Some of you maybe that are a little bit more skilled in reading scripture, you may find it not that difficult, but for the rest of us, we're going to feel a little bit lost. But by the time we sort it out, not only is it going to be easy, but it's going to be powerfully encouraging. So I'm glad that you're here this morning, but there's no way that we're going to understand today without some background. So first of all, let's recap where we're at. 
the author of Hebrews has been trying to talk about the old way of doing things and how it changed to Jesus and how you never go back. You can never go back. It was not a matter of choosing Jesus or Judaism. It was that Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism. And that you cannot reject the Messiah, the very fulfillment of Judaism, and expect to be saved. There is no other option. There is no other way. And he begins to argue out and say, I understand you're receiving persecution and heat for being a Christian. However, that is not sufficient grounds by which you bail out on what you know. Everything you need is found in Jesus Christ. For he is greater than the angels, he is greater than Moses, he is greater than Aaron, he is greater than Abraham, he is greater than the priesthood, and he's making that argument moving forward. But when he starts talking about Jesus' new way being better than the old way, he uses a phrase, new covenant and old covenant. Jesus' way versus the law. Now, some of us did not grow up in church, and so we hear this phrase, the law, and we don't understand what it means. So let me bring you up to speed very quickly. The way it worked in Judaism, and still continues to work that way, is they were very blessed to receive from God rules and regulations about what God wanted and did not want. Additionally, there was a sacrificial system that was set up, by which through giving an offering in repentance, there could be a restoration of relationship. Now, that is kind of God. It is merciful of God. It is gracious of God to allow both the law and the sacrificial system to exist. But what we need to do is we need to look through and say, what was that for? Now that we look at it from a perspective of Jesus having come, we look and we say, wow, there were a lot of holes in that system. Why did we have to go through that to get to where we're at? So let me express a little bit so we can be grounded in this idea of what the law and the sacrificial system were for. So as I told you, the law was a code a listing of rules it starts out with the ten commandments and blows out from there and there's hundreds of codes to adhere to that was the agreement that god said listen this is what i want this is what i don't want if you continue in these things appropriately i can pour out my blessing upon you if you reject me violate my word run your own way you're on your own and not good things are going to happen so what was the purpose of that? The purpose of the law can be summed up in one word. It's maintain. The purpose of the law was to maintain healthy access to God's presence, allowing his blessings to pour. And you did that by obedience to the law. The law was contained within the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also known as the Torah. Those are believed by tradition to have been written by Moses, and it calculated out all the different things. It was referred to as the Mosaic Law because Moses was a guy who got to go up on the mountain and receive the Ten Commandments. Parts of it are known as the Levitical Law because it was the priest's code of conduct. All right? So we have all that. So from their perspective, and I kind of broke it out, 
Before Jesus, there was one perspective about the law. After Jesus, there's a different one. So before Jesus, here was their view. The law served to demonstrate what God wants and what God demands of his people. It holds mankind accountable to a holy and righteous God to keep them as a holy people, not only acceptable to God, but to be able to receive his blessings continually. That's how they viewed it. They viewed it as a positive, although mankind kind of distorted it along the way. Now, how we view it after the cross, after Jesus, is a little bit different. Here's how we see it now. Although human beings were never going to be able to adhere to the perfect code of the law, the law served a very powerful purpose. It explained the high standards of God, how unable we are as mankind to achieve those in our sinful state. It produced humility, it expressed the need for repentance, and it was a beautiful teacher that demonstrated our need for a savior. When Jesus came, he did not get rid of the law, he fulfilled the law. All right? That's kind of how we look at it. Now, that's the code portion. What was the sacrifices about? Now, to bring the rest of us in on the conversation, if you're not familiar with it, there was a way by which if you did wrong things or if you wanted to connect with God in a special way, you would offer up sacrifices. Some of those sacrifices were animal sacrifices. As an animal lover, I find it not only horrifying, but really, really messed up. I happen to think sheep are cute, personally. And so the whole idea that you screw up and Lammy dies, I'm not really cool with. Now, I understand the deeper concepts about transference of guilt uh, symbolically from the person to the animal, and then the animal is then slain and there's bloodshed. We're going to talk about all that in the coming weeks. But the very idea of it is a little weird to me. So we have to say, what was the benefit of it? What did it get us? That can be summed up in one word as well, and that word is restore. If God sets out a code that you need to fulfill by which to receive his blessings, what happens if you choke? What happens if you're wrong? Are you forever cut out? No. God gave another system by which to restore that back into play. That's pretty gracious of God. That's pretty merciful of God. Indeed, the purpose of the sacrificial system was to restore healthy access to God's presence by repentance and sacrifice. It was a relational healing element. How they viewed it was to get you back in connection with God, you would sacrifice because you're the one that violated the covenant. Now it's going to require an offering of repentance to restore that relationship. However, from our perspective after the cross, after Jesus, we look back on it and we have a different perspective. And it's this. We found out God never really wanted the blood of bulls and goats. That was never his point. He wasn't looking up going, man, I'm really low on blood today. I wish I had more. That was never the point. God didn't want the death of sheep. That was not what he was excited about. He was not a God that needed to be appeased by hurting other people. He said, that's not it at all. He was very clear. But what that system did was provide a way to express guilt to take ownership of what someone did wrong, 
to offer in faith a sacrifice that costs them something. Why? To alter their heart. You do not offer a sacrifice to a God you do not believe in. You do not give of something that is valuable to you to something you think is ridiculous. Therefore, the very idea that they would offer up something that they owned was an acknowledgement of faith. The problem with it is it only cleaned the outside. It didn't clean the inside. So as we move forward, I believe there's only one question left that this begs. And that's how did Old Testament people get saved? We have memorized in our minds as Christians the phrase, no one gets to heaven except through Jesus, right? How do we know that? Because he said, no one gets to heaven but through me, all right? It's not rocket science. Uh, He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We know that's through Jesus. Well, what happens if you're born before Jesus shows up here on the earth? What happened to those folks? Some people will say, well, they were saved by righteous deeds. They were saved by good works. That is incorrect. No one has ever been saved by good works. You said, well, then how in the world did they get saved? They didn't have the Jesus covenant to work under. Simplest, most crude, simplistic way I can put it, they were saved on the layaway plan. Here's why. If you want an item and you take it to layaway, you put down an amount on it that says it will get paid off. They don't give you the stuff until it's paid off. In the Old Testament, people were always saved by faith. Abraham, faith. It was not about the adherence in a perfect way. Why? Because human beings were never going to cut it. But when they followed the code, when they offered the sacrifices, it was ways to demonstrate their heart, which God looked at their heart, gauged their heart, saw their faith, and said, I will take that as a down payment, and I'll wait for it to be fully paid off later. When was it paid off? When Jesus Christ died on the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the power and the removal of sin went both directions. It fired backwards in history. It fired fired forward into the future. And that is how all mankind has been saved. Make sense? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. We're going to go from 11 through to the end of the chapter. And as I shared with you before, we're going to read through this and you're going to go, eh, I don't get it. Okay. We're going to read it anyway. Here we go. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. 
Now this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separated from sinners exalted above the heavens He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for the people. Since he did this, once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would shine truth into our lives we don't get it but i think we can but lord even more than understanding it is the ability to let it soak in and match between our head and our hearts because lord we understand a lot of the information but we sure don't live like it we don't rest in it we don't act like it's true quite frankly lord we act like we live under the old covenant please allow us to understand how we're supposed to live And be like that. May you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's zoom back to the beginning and I'll kind of explain it as we go along. Verse 11 Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one? Named after the order of Aaron. That's a fancy way of saying something pretty basic. It's this. Hey, if everything was cool with the old way of doing things, why did they need a Messiah? Why all of a sudden are we talking? All the Jews are saying, hey, everything's legit. We got the law. We got the priests. We got this. We got that. And then all of a sudden, they're all looking forward to a Messiah. Why? Why do we need a Messiah if everything's fine? If there's no holes in the system, why do we need a new guy. That's all it said. And then it says, for when there's a change in the priesthood, and why do we keep calling it the priesthood? Because priests help connect man and God. So whenever you get a new guy connecting man of God, he's got a new system. So it says, when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. Hey, new guy, new way of doing things. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belonged to another tribe 
from which no one has ever served at the altar. No one's ever been a priest. For it's evident our Lord was descended from Judah, not Levi. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Remember I told you there was a problem. Because we keep saying that Jesus is our great high priest, but priests only come through the tribe of Levi, not the tribe of Judah. Doesn't that screw everything up? No. And here's why. All the Jews knew the prophecies. The prophecies were this. The Messiah comes through David's line. David's not in Levi. David's in Judah. So he doesn't even have to argue that hard. He's saying, you guys know this. You're arguing Jesus can't be legit. Hold up. You know full well that we've always been waiting for someone to come through David's line, through the tribe of Judah, to come rescue us. You've always known that. Well, yeah. Jesus was in Judah. So, yes, he was a king, but he was also a priest. Let me give you a quick side note. The sacrificial system in the law atoned for sin. Anybody know the phrase atonement? I mean, you've probably heard that phrase. It's kind of a fancy word. It means cover over. So like you put a cover on a dish, that's, that's just the word. But here's the problem. If you cover over sin, it's still there. If you sweep something under the rug, can't see it. We can pretend, look, it's gone. It's not. It's under the rug. At some point, someone's got a vacuum under the rug, right? So the problem with the Old Testament style of doing things was it was beautiful in the sense that sin was covered over, but it was not cleansed. It was not done away with. Ah, that's going to be a problem. We pick it up in verse 15. He said, now my argument, look at this, this becomes even more evident, it's more obvious, when all of a sudden another priest arises in a similar type as that guy Melchizedek we talked about last week. He didn't have to be a Levite, he was before the Levites showed up. So obviously it doesn't always have to be a Levite thing, right? He has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He's not a priest just because he was born in the right family but by the power of an indestructible life. Why is Jesus legit? I don't know. You killed him, and he came back. If you kill someone and they don't die, it's called indestructible. That's why he's legit. I mean, you can look at it and you can say, listen, I don't care where he came from. I don't care what tribe and all that and everything else. You killed him, and he showed back up. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty amazing. Indeed, he is right. He is legitimate. He is good. It says, For it is witnessed of him by David in Psalm 110.4, hundreds of years afterwards, speaking of the Messiah to come, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That was a shot across the bow to the Jews that the priesthood thing was eventually going to change. Because the Messiah was going to show up. And he was going to be a different sort. So they should have all been put on notice. They should have all had a warning. Hey, your system's going to change along the way. But then they were shocked when it did. Hmm. Let me just make one last comment that I talked about in my intro. Do you understand God makes the rules? 
we always have this idea that there's this external code that God has to adhere to. He is the code. So you look and you go, he shouldn't do it like that. What? Who are you? Where'd you get that idea? Whatever he does is right. By definition, his actions are perfect. They are good. He establishes reality, not us. Now, he happens to be consistent. He happens to be the one that geared most of us up to understand good and bad. So we look at it and go, wow, look, he's being very nice and fair and good. But he is so far above that. All right. Let's pick it up here in verse 18. He said, now let me argue it this way. There's a negative side of the argument, meaning something that costs and then something that's positive. So let me talk about that. For on the one hand, the negative side of things, I get it. A former commandment is set aside. That phrase in Greek means canceled, annulling a treaty, stopping a promise, taking a name off a register, shutting down a law. I get it. On one hand, something got shut down and done away with. That's pretty rough to make changes. Why did he do that? Because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Is he demeaning or degrading the law? No. He's being straight up practical. Was the law weak? Yeah, because it had a hole in it. What was the hole? It was unable to cleanse sin. That means it's weak. We need something else to fix that problem. But then he says it's useless. You go, well, obviously it was beneficial. What do you mean it was useless? It was useless in not ultimately getting someone saved. So, wow, we can't stay with that one. If it doesn't get you all the way there, we have a problem. He said, but on the other hand, on the positive side of things, with Jesus, a better hope is introduced. A better hope, a better way, a new covenant, a better thing with a person, not just a code. Where all of a sudden you get Jesus. Jesus is loving, kind, gracious, merciful. He comes in. He's rock solid. It's based on his character. We know there's no changing with him. And he makes sure something amazing happens. So even though we set aside one, we got something better. Now through this new way... Through which we draw near to God. This is the way where we're now established in connection. It used to be, do this right. If you screw up, we can do this and kind of cover over sin. Now, through Jesus, he actually paved a clear path by which you can be united to God without fear. Why would we ever go backwards? wouldn't make sense. When God institutes this new way... He didn't do it without a promise. He did it with a lock. Formerly, people became priests. They were made priests without a promise. It was just a beautiful system, but it was never going to last. God didn't lock it down and go, forever after, this is how it's going to go. But this one, the Jesus one, the new covenant, that was he was made a priest with a lock. There's not going to be any changes from Jesus. He is it. He is what everybody's been looking for. He was the ultimate fulfillment. It was locked with a promise by the one God who said to him, Jesus, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. 
Now check this out. Let's let's ask an obvious question. If we were really going to get to the Jesus thing, why didn't we just do that at first? Doesn't seem highly inefficient to do the whole. Oh look, here we are, and now we have a code. Oh look, now we have a sacrificial system, and now we're doing this. Oh, I didn't really like that one. Now we need to do this, and this is what I was really looking for. Why didn't you just tell us that? Way back then. I mean, why don't we do it this way? Day one creation, that's plenty of time for us to screw it up. Day two should have been like Jesus day. Right? But now it's like, oh my gosh, all this time, thousands and thousands of years. Why didn't we just get there earlier? Well, I don't know. How come you don't do that with your kids? What's intriguing is that we treat our kids the same way. Right when the child comes out, yeah, you have a talk with them. Get that cord cut. All right, now here's the thing. We got rules in this house. I understand you were an embryo like yesterday. But the point is, I have expectations. And you know what? Here's the deal. I don't want you to be breaking curfew and you are not getting the keys to my car and blah, blah, blah. Right? Sounds stupid. Of course it does. You're talking to a newborn. It starts out with phrases like, I'm safe, you're safe, I love you. That's how it starts. Foundational building blocks. God has always treated us as mankind as if we're growing up. So he starts out with Adam and Eve with some very basic concepts. I love you, Uh, you are cherished in my heart, and I will do all sorts of things to rescue you. I'm not cool with the way that you're acting. I will bring about discipline. And along the way, I'm going to give you more and more understanding about what I'm really into and what I really want. You can't handle it all right now, but I'm going to give it to you progressively. Now, here's what's intriguing. If you tell them in advance where you're going and they're immature, they're going to screw up the point. If you tell your teenagers everything that you have planned in your mind, where it's headed about how eventually your great plan is that you would be good friends. Isn't that ultimately your goal? Hey, I hope that my children grow up and they become such amazing, thriving individuals. I can't wait to go on vacation with my kids and they're like my friends. Well, that is very cool. That is a beautiful view. Problem is you don't tell that when they're 13. Why? They're like, I'm your friend right now. Guess what your friend just said? I don't like your rules. It's not appropriate up front. It's only appropriate later on. That's progressive revelation. God tells us things. Why? Because the process is important. God didn't create us for results. He could have got those on his own in an instant. He created us for relationship, worship, and process. And in that process, he reveals more and more and more to us about what he's really doing. Why? So that we're continually going, wow, God, you're pretty amazing. Yeah? Guess what he's going to do for the rest of eternity? Oh, more of that. (laughs) Verse 22. Now, this eternal priesthood that we've been talking about, this makes Jesus the guarantor. The one who says, this will happen. I got the God side lock. I got your side lock. This will happen. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, a better way of doing things, a better system. The former 
priests, remember those guys in the Old Testament? They were a ton of them. There were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Uh, one, one Jewish historian said that there were 83, 84 high priests from Aaron all the way to the temple being destroyed in AD 70. Why were there so many? I don't know. They kept dying. Hey, I love that priest. Pfft, he's over. Hey, I love that new priest, right? They had to keep changing it and changing it and changing it. But look at this. It says, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. That word is unalterable, unable to be changed. Why? Because he continues forever. Not dead yet. Check it out. Not dead yet. How about now? Nope, not dead yet. Still doing it the same way. Here we go. Consequently, because of all this, he is able to save to the uttermost. That's a pretty amazing phrase. It means save throughout all time to the fullest extent. Does that matter to you? Absolutely. Well, I'm pretty wicked. I wonder if God can save me. Mm, he's not impressed. Of course he can. Wow, I'm in a deep hole. I wonder if God can reach me. Of course he can. Wow, I not only screwed up in the past, I'm screwing up right now. I wonder if God can forgive me. Mm, of course he can. Why? Because he can save to the uttermost. There is no stain of sin he cannot remove. There is no darkness that he cannot chase away. There is no bonds that he cannot break, right? I mean, that's the idea of Jesus. He's that big, that powerful, that amazing. So there is nothing in your life that he cannot have victory over. Ah. Amen. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him by grace, through faith, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How about this? Here's the scenario. We always kind of have this idea where I get it. All right. I was stupid in the past. And you know what? I've done all kinds of bad stuff. And we do these little testimony things, right? And we're all wowed and we're moved. And we're like, you know what? I was a loser. I used to kill nuns for a living, you know, and you're like, wow, that is extreme. And you're like, I was on crank the whole time. And and I use bombs. You know, I mean, it's just, we have this really extreme testimony, right? And then we go, and then I got saved. And Jesus cleansed everything from it. We go, oh, that's amazing. Well, then, we don't know what happens next. What if you kill another nun? And we're like, uh-oh. I understand you got cleansed from all that other stuff. But now you know. And you still killed a nun. That's messed up. Does Jesus cover that one? Ah, see, here's what's intriguing. We say the phrase and we go, listen, I have been justified by God. I have been made right. I was declared not guilty when Jesus Christ died for my sins once and for all. He looked at my entire life and said, man, things are only getting worse. Guess what? I'll die for that too. Dies for the entire gig. And declares you to be righteous before God if you're a child of his. However, there is also the practical element, you're still a loser. So am I, yeah? And we're still doing bad stuff. We're still messed up. 
But Jesus is still interceding, saying, covered that, covered that, cleanse that, cleanse that, cleanse that, cleanse that. And he continually says, come here, come here. I'm telling you, I washed that up. And you know what? I'll scrub you clean again. You are messed up. And you know what? I'm going to continue to work this and mold you like clay until you become into the image of the Son of God. Continually. He's not done with you. And we just look and we go, God, he's just going to give up on me. Forget it. I just keep screwing up. He's like, you think that wasn't part of the system? Of course it was. What do you mean? Yes. What you th- oh, you thought I was just like, I had one good day and I was all fired up and I saved you. And now I'm like, eh. <laughs> yeah, kind of a drag. finish it up verse 26 for it was indeed fitting it was absolutely perfect it was amazing that we should have such a high priest one who is holy that word is goodness purity in god's sight it is amazing that we would have one that is innocent there is no evil in him there is no pollution in him he doesn't slime anybody It is amazing that we would have one that is unstained, perfect before God, an unblemished sacrifice, a sinless lamb, separated from sinners, though fully human, though tempted as we are, without sin completely. And he was exalted above the heavens as the right hand of God, as God's son. He has no need, like those high priests in the past, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for the people since he did it once for all when he offered up himself. All right, we're going to be in the series moving forward and talking about this whole idea of how Jesus cleansed us and what it was, how it was better than the old system and sacrifice and, and how you know it was a better blood. And we're going to be talking about all that stuff. But let me give you a spoiler. Here's the bottom line. When all the blood of bulls and goats were sweeping things under the rug, Jesus came, ripped the rug back, and blew it all away. Why? Because he laid down on the altar and paid for more than you can ever load on. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, regular people, screwed up, normal human beings. But the word of the new covenant, the word of the new promise, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, afterwards to replace, appoints a son, Jesus Christ, who has been made perfect in his humanity forever. Two things to close up with. Number one, Jesus is greater than you can ever imagine. He is not just a slightly better version of you. He literally, here's the game that we play. We're like, all right. I'm a good person. Can we all agree on that? There was this one time where there was like one piece of cake left, and I left it for my wife, Susie. <laughs> I know. I know. It's kind of impressive. The other thing is, there was this time I was playing Life, the game Life with my kids where you have a little spinner and everything, and I like cheated once. Okay? I mean, I could have been cheating the whole time. They're like, I don't know. I trust Dad. You know? And I was like, listen... And what we do is we say, you know what, Jesus, man, he never cheats at life. I mean, okay, barely ever. And here's the thing. One time, 
One time he saved like two pieces of cake. Okay, do you understand how stupid that sounds? We keep saying that Jesus is a little better than us. Hey man, I get, you know, I'm really good too. You and me, we're buds. I mean, you're super good, I'm super good. Okay, no. Jesus Christ is holy other. He is so far beyond and beautiful and amazing and magnificent and constant and loving and good. So when he pours out his love on you, you should respond with gratitude. When you hear that he died for you, it shouldn't matter. He is not just another good guy. He is the only good guy. And he laid down on the altar that you would never die. That's amazing. Lastly is this. When you are offered a new way by which God gives you stuff you don't deserve, why in the world are you still playing the performance game? I get it. You know theologically what's right. You know you're saved by faith and not by works. Blah, 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 blah. Problem is, you live like you do. How do I know that? Man, I got to do my devotions or God's going to be like totally mad at me. Man, I got to give. If I don't give, I'm going to be cursed. Hey, I got to do this and I got to do that. I got to play this game and I got to do this. Oh my gosh, God's watching me and he's going to beat me up and he's going to do this. And, and, and he's just mean and I got to make him love me. I got to make him love me. I got to make him love me. I got to do this good thing and this good thing. Man, it's been like three days since I've done something good and, and God's probably tired of me. Wrong. It's not right. It's not right. You need to realize that Jesus loves you total now. Amen? I mean, that's the idea. You don't have to earn it. It's not like God's going, man, you are so stinking irritating. <laughs> it is like a loving, perfect parent with a rebellious child. Do you love your children? Of course you do. Will that change? No. Are you going to put up with it? No. But that doesn't change your love. Your father stares at you, protects you, and smiles at you while you sleep. Usually that's the only time you stop talking. And he is so joyful that you're here. Some of us just need to soak in that love, yeah? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful way to spend a morning, to bask in the amazing glory that is you, and how some of that glory falls down upon us. We pray right now, Lord, that you would set us free from all this, i got to try harder or you're never going to love me thing. Lord, would you show us what maturity really looks like and what good parents actually look like that don't have conditional love? Would you show us what it's like to be held so tightly that we can't squirm away? Father, change our hearts. Fill us up and let us worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.